there's a reaction that we usually have when we feel like we're under attack. Have you ever felt, or have you felt attacked recently? Maybe by a sibling or a parent or a child. (laughs) Maybe by somebody at work. Maybe by a church member who has a different um, way of looking at something than you, right? Um, there's, there's a tendency that we have. What, what do we usually do when we are under attack? We, we usually have one of two uh, responses. One goes like this, right? We, we knuckle down and we, we, we start to fight. We defend ourselves. The other option is we do this. <laughs> and that's, that's the running away part, right? We either fight or we flee. Well, I think that we're living on the fringe of eternity. I believe that, that we're seeing the, the stuff in the earth um, come to a head, come to a point where Jesus is just around the corner. And you look at Matthew 24, you look at Matthew 25, Revelation 15 and 16. These chapters describe stuff that we're seeing today. Uh, You could talk about political upheaval. You could talk about warfare. You could bring all kinds of different stuff in there. Uh, Even bring in disease, pestilence, the Bible calls it, into the story. And and you can recognize the signs of the times that uh, this world's not going to be around as it is for much longer. How much longer? I don't know. The disciples uh, heard Jesus saying that he's coming soon. Even in in Revelation 22, Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. And it's been a couple thousand years. So I'm not going to put a date on that, but I believe it's going to be soon. And now that would suggest that we're going to be in a place of uh, attack, right? Now, sometimes we even thrive on that idea. We're like, yeah, they're going to attack us. <laughs> we're going to be under persecution. Uh, I don't know why, but we seem, as, as Adventists, we seem to have a fixation on the idea of persecution. Um, I'm not excited about that idea, just so you know. Um, but, but the good question would be, if we understand that's going to be a reality, how should we relate? How should we, we relate in the times that we're living in? God's people have a choice about how we relate to our world around us. Now, I, I can't help but uh, bring in today's political environment. Somebody just yesterday, Thursday night, was, uh, I was meeting with them, and they were talking about how their friend... Um, he, he had some health conditions. His, his doctor said he needed to get a COVID shot. He did. His friend um, was uh, saying something about the COVID shot and, and was very disparaging about it and basically said, um, if you get the shot, you're a Democrat. And, if you, and, and, and it's the Republicans that don't get the shot, right? So there's this politicization of the environment that we're living in. Even healthcare is politicized. And, uh, and, and the question you have to ask is how do we relate in an environment where we feel attacked. Maybe by our friends, maybe by our church members, but especially by our government. I've been doing a series called uh, Daniel's Story. And in this series, we we see these little vignettes, these little stories along Daniel's life. We don't get a lot of it, but just a little bit. Maybe when he's 17, 18, 19, that that range for a little bit. Maybe in his his, uh, 20s or 30s. And then we jump down to his 80s. So it's not like we get a lot, but we get these vignettes, these little stories that help us to see how he related. The the first one, uh, Daniel is, is exiled from his home into a totalitarian government. Does anybody know what totalitarian means? It means they're in control of everything, right? 
totalitarian government in a pagan country. And he is uh, forced to be educated and then to serve this government. And, and somehow, somehow he is, is uh, drawn into the confidence of this pagan king. There's this one moment where he says, I don't want to eat this um, unhealthy food uh, and, and drink this wine. God doesn't want it for me. I'd rather not. And, and the Bible says that God gave him favor. And that's something to underscore in your mind. God did this for him. He didn't stand up in defense for himself, though he did say what he knew to be true. And then he waited on God and God did the work. Well, the next story is Daniel chapter 2, and, and we find Daniel face to face with an executioner. He hadn't done anything wrong, but he's, he's being executed, or going to be. He doesn't resist. He simply says, could you give me a night? And he and his, his friends prayed. God gave him the vision, and, and it was because of his faithfulness, not fighting, not running, but his faithfulness to the duty God had given him, um, that the king was exposed to the God of the universe, a God who, according to Daniel, rules in the affairs of men. Just uh, let me ask you a question. Does God rule in your affairs? Can he be trusted? I think according to Daniel's story, we find that yes, God can be trusted. Because the next chapter is these three friends of Daniel that stand when everybody else is bowing down to an idol. And, and just let's just think about this uh, for a moment. Um, this is kind of how Satan does things. He likes conspiracies. How many of you consider yourselves conspiracy theorists? Don't raise your hand. Um, there, there's, there's something about conspiracies that, that's exciting, especially for Adventists. But... Um, <laughs> Because we know the greatest conspirator there is. Uh, but let's not, let's not uh, go into all the conspiracies. Because the conspiracies Satan likes are the ones that Daniel 3 described. And that's the conspiracy where the government forces worship to a false god. And the punishment for, false, for, for not obeying is death. That's a pattern that we see repeated over and over and over again. When you see that pattern, you can know the devil's conspiracy is at work. Until you see that pattern, you might should ask, put a little question mark beside all the other conspiracies, right? But, but that one, we know for certain, is Satan's conspiracy. Now, these three young men, they, they say, no, we're not going to bow down to this idol. The king uh, puts them up for review. They, they say politely but firmly, no. We don't need to be careful about answering you. We won't disobey our God. He throws them into the fire. They're executed. Think about that. We can stand for truth and we can still face punishment. That's a reality. But who do we serve? What God do we serve? Well, it's the God who stands with them in their punishment. And just so happens that he's pretty good at fire. And, uh, and so they are, they are walking out of the fire free men when they went in bound. Uh, the God that we serve defended these young men. They didn't need to stand in defense for themselves. They didn't need to fight, and they didn't need to run away. These three young men could have, when they heard about the, the statue that they would have to bow to, they could have run away, but they didn't. Sometimes we have that mindset. <laughs> We're the run to the country, <laughs> get away from the people, exist in isolation. But don't we serve a God who is capable of defending us? Yeah, 
We don't need to run in fear. We don't need to stand in defense. We simply need to follow God. And then you have Daniel 5 and Daniel, Daniel 4 and Daniel 5. Daniel 4, there's the story of the king that was proud. And what did God do? He humbled him and won his heart. And then that Daniel 5 is the story of a king who is proud. And think about, think about uh, Belshazzar. Cyrus, a guy named in Scripture whom Nebuchadnezzar would surely have known about because he was so close with Daniel. And Daniel had somehow obtained the, the Isaiah scrolls from, from Israel. I think that Daniel had read those scrolls to Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And guess what Daniel's um, Babylonian name is? Belteshazzar. You know what the difference between Belteshazzar and Belshazzar is? Nothing. It's just a down through the years, we've spelled them differently. They're the exact same Babylonian name. This is his favorite grandson kind of a guy because remember Belshazzar, Belteshazzar, Daniel um, is, is a favorite of Nebuchadnezzar. They're, they're close. This guy, Belshazzar, Belshazzar, would probably have known that same story. And him, in his pride, he knew that, that Cyrus was the guy that was promised. And instead of relenting, he said, ha, no God can get through these boundaries raised a glass, a, a golden goblet from the sanctuary, defying the God of heaven. I dare you to try. Your Cyrus won't win over me. Now, Daniel could have come into that situation and said lots of things with the writing on the wall or whatnot, but he simply said politely and confidently what God had told him to say. And that night, that king, unwilling to be humbled by God, was killed. And God brought in the man who he wanted to rule. And that, that brings us to the story in Daniel 6. And I want to tell you two stories. Uh, th those are all good responses. And, and we have a very similar response. Like Daniel, Daniel's friends, they, in the face of terrible circumstances, stand faithful to God, not in defense and not running away. And so Daniel chapter 6 in order to, to understand his mindset, we need to look at some things that Daniel might have read. Look at, Dan, at Psalm chapter 18, verse 2. Psalm 18, 2. What do we do when, when we're in a difficult situation? The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. If you think about Daniel and his friends, when they faced problems, their faithfulness to God changed things. Daniel was responsible for Nebuchadnezzar's salvation. Because of his faithfulness, Nebuchadnezzar had an, a face-to-face -face encounter with God. The, the Israelite, the three Hebrew worthies, right? These guys that stood when everybody bowed, because of their faithfulness, a king, a totalitarian king who is demanding the worship of false gods, took down those government policies and upheld the, the worship of the God of the Jews, which I'm sure had an impact all the way through the Babylonian kingdom on the Jews and under Nebuchadnezzar's authority because of three men's faithfulness in trial. A whole nation was blessed. I think that, that's, that should tell us something. When I seek my personal preservation, my rights to be upheld, I lose something. 
But when I'm willing to let God be the defender of my rights, then not only do I gain, but lots of others do too. Let's look at this next story in Daniel chapter 6. And as you, as you open it, there's a, a quick historical account that I need to, to clarify. Belshazzar is taken over, the Babylonian empire under Belshazzar and Nabonidus is taken over by Cyrus. But Cyrus wasn't at the gates when, um, when the um, Babylon was overthrown. Cyrus was in a different spot. And we know this because he's written some records. The Nabonidus Chronicle is one of them. And so we know where he was. And we know that the guy who was at Babylon is a guy named Gibaru. And Gamaru is, is the general. Um, also, we know from some financial records that Cyrus was called the Persian king or the king in Persia. Well, there's this other guy named Darius, and the financial records of the time call him the king in Babylon. And it's only about a year after the overthrow of Babylon that Cyrus becomes the king in Persia and the king in Babylon. And uh, what we also know from the historical record is that Gubaru died about a year after the overthrow of, the, um, of, of Babylon. And so what we, what we, try to, what we think is, is going on here in, in uh, Daniel chapter 6 is there's this guy named Darius, who, who that's his, probably his throne name. More than likely, this is Gubaru, the, the general who overthrew Babylon under Cyrus. Just keep that in your mind as we read. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. Daniel soon provided himself, proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs. But they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, completely trustworthy. So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds of accusing Daniel will be in the connection with the rules of his religion. And this is where Satan's conspiracies start to, to, to thrive. A few people who don't like God's faithful servants decide that they're going to make policies against the worship of God. Do you think you can be a faithful follower of Jesus and a good citizen? Is that possible? What about if you were uh, in communist China? Would that still be possible? Would it be possible to be a good citizen and a faithful follower of Jesus in Iran? Would it be possible to be a good citizen of God and, and a faithful follower of Jesus in communist, North, not communist, atheistic North Korea? That's an interesting question. What about, what about the United States? Is it possible to be a good citizen of the United States? Somebody that nobody can reproach. Somebody that the administrators of the nation look, look onto and say, I, I can't find anything, any fault with this guy. Is it possible to be a good citizen of the United States and a faithful follower of Jesus? See, this question is an interesting one. Um, when Daniel is in the middle of a government conspiracy... He is found to be not only a faithful follower of Jesus, but a faithful citizen of the country. 
They can't accuse him of anything except the religious stuff. Oh, that we would be in that same situation where nobody looking in our our lives would be able to say anything bad about us except those people, they worship God like the Bible tells them to. Keep reading in Daniel 6, 6 through 9. So the administrators and the high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius. We are all in agreement, we administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors, that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now your majesty issue and sign into the law, uh, this into law, so it can't be changed. An official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. And so Darius signed it. Like the other kings before him, he was proud, lifted up in his own eyes. What do you think is going to happen to Darius? And, and notice this conspiracy is, is that worship issue. And what's the, what's the consequence if you don't obey? Death. Those two uh, are really key. Look at, at Revelation chapter 13 and you'll find the, the end of time conspiracy that the Bible describes has nothing to do with a, uh, a mandate to get a vaccine. There, I said it. I'm sorry if you want to talk to me about it afterwards. You're welcome to, but I just want to say, the Bible says it has nothing to do with control over your medical records. In fact, the Bible tells us that, the, that God has given governments authority to make laws that affect our lives. Some of them are just and some will be unjust in every environment that, that you might find yourself in, whether it's China or the United States. The, the government has the authority to make laws. So, for example, in Romans 13, 1 and 2, it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Was Nebuchadnezzar God's appointed king in Babylon over the Jews? Yes. Was Belshazzar? Yes. Was Darius? Yes. Did they make laws that hurt God's people? Yes. Huh. What do we do when we're under attack? Do we fight? Do we protest? Do we go to the governing authorities and say, come on, make policies that are in favor of us? Do we run? Do we hide? Do we go to the hills? Do we isolate ourselves from those we disagree with? What do we do in the face of of conflict and challenge. Well, <laughs> Daniel 6.10 tells us what Daniel did. When Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with his windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. So Daniel finds out that the government has made this law against the worship of his God. And what does he do? Nothing different. Prophets and Kings, page 545, a man whose heart is stayed upon God will be the same in the hour of his greatest trial as he is in prosperity. When the light and favor of God and of men beam upon him. If you're faithful when it's easy, you'll be faithful when it's difficult too. That's the promise there. That means we need to learn to be faithful now, doesn't it? When things are easy, learn to be faithful today. And that's what Daniel did. He continued to be faithful to God as he always had been. Daniel's faithfulness 
was rewarded with a brief trial and an, a, a sentence to be executed. I mean, it sounds pretty bad. In fact, the story would be unremarkable and unrecorded if it ended there. But remember, just because we are servants of God does not mean that we won't face trials. And it doesn't mean that we won't be unjustly treated. The question is, what do we do in response to that attack, to that injustice? Do we fight for our rights? Do we run and flee? Daniel didn't. He didn't do either one. He didn't go and defend himself in front of Darius. And I think the reason why is because Daniel's in his, in his uh, 80s by now, probably 84, 83, something like that. And he'd had a long life, a long life knowing that God is the one who sets up kings and takes them down. Why would he need to go talk to Darius? Darius is just the king. He gets to kneel before the king of kings, before the one who is in control over this government. Why should he go to the second in command when he can go to the first? He's got a direct line to God. And so that's what he does. He goes and he prays. And because of his prayer, he ends up being taken to the lion's den. Now, Darius, he did his best. He tried to look through all the, the codes to try to figure out if he could reverse things. He couldn't. And so he, uh, he brought, he came with, I mean, this has got to be exceptional that the king would go to an execution. He goes with Daniel to this execution, and he makes this statement in Daniel 6, 16 that's, that shows you something's going on in his heart. The proud king was being humbled. May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you, he said to Daniel. May your God, whom you never cease to serve, deliver you. Something was starting to percolate in this guy's mind, and he didn't sleep well that night, though apparently Daniel did. I wish, I wish we could uh, just spend some time with Daniel in the lion's den, what that might have been like, and explore what was going on in his heart as he hung out with these lions big purring kittens for him. I wonder what that would have been like. Would there have been angels there? Was he communing with God like the three Hebrew worthies were when, when his friends were when they were in the, 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 um, the fire? I, I thought about this as I was writing the sermon. In Daniel 3, the God who is described as a burning fire spends time with the men who are thrown into the fire and they are not burned. In Daniel 6, the, the Redeemer, who is described as the Lion of Judah, spends time with his friend who is in the lion's den, and they are not hurt. I don't care what Satan throws at us. Our God is the master of it all. He even conquered death. So death doesn't have a hold on us because of Jesus. May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you, he says. And then Darius goes and has a fitful night of sleep. Doesn't sleep that night at all, from what I gather. He, he refused any entertainment. He refused everything. He, he simply he fasted and he mourned for the loss of his friend. And yet that next morning he had some hope and he went to the tomb. And he had the thing rolled away and he called into the tomb. I mean, what... <laughs> You don't call into a tomb of a dead man where you know there's bones that are being licked if you think there's no hope. He has hope. 
And so he says, oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, in verse 20, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? His hope is growing. His night of fasting, I wonder if, I wonder if God had spent the night with him too. And when Daniel responded in verse 21, O king, live forever. May God send, may, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth that they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Darius was thrilled. And you know what happens? There's, there's something that happens that, that's grisly. He uh, gets Daniel out quickly, carefully. He's old. Um, gets him out of the, the lion's den. And then he, uh, he sends for all those accusers, all those people who conspired to harm God's man. And guess what they got? The lion of the tribe of Judah brought justice. Does the Bible say that, that Satan's conspiracy ends up winning at the end? No, the lion of the tribe of Judah brings justice. And all the accusers find their, their justice before God. And all those who are faithful can say this, I was found blameless before you, O God. Why? Because Christ's righteousness, Christ's blamelessness stands in our place, doesn't it? Darius was exceedingly glad. Justice happens. And, and then he makes a proclamation. And the proclamation goes like this in verse 25. Peace be multiplied to you. And, and notice in, it says that it went to all people and nation and languages that dwell on the earth, everywhere, not just in Babylon, but it went all over Cyrus's kingdom of Persia and Media and all over Assyria and Babylon and Egypt, everywhere in the world, this notification went out. Peace to you. I make a decree that all my royal dominions, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of lions. Guess who else read that besides the people? King Cyrus read that. And when Darius died, just a short year after he was set up as this regent king, in Babylon, Cyrus took his, his um, role there and became not just the king of Persia, but the king of Babylon. And when Cyrus became the king of Babylon, guess whose name Cyrus knew? Daniel. Daniel was faithful. He was faithful. He did not fight for his rights. He did not run and flee to protect himself. He stood in the face of death. And because of his faithfulness, Cyrus was able to read the Isaiah scroll and see that a hundred years ago, the God of heaven who sets up kings and takes them down had predicted that Cyrus would be the king that ruled in Babylon. And he had predicted that Cyrus would let God's people go. And because of Daniel's faithfulness, Cyrus wrote a decree and the nation of Israel was, let, was, was freed to go back to Jerusalem. And not only that, but they were given government support. Careful now, I'm just, I'm stepping on some toes here because we don't like the idea of government support. We want to keep religion and, right, separate, okay? But it was the government who built the temple. The, media, the, the Medo-Persian government paid for the second Jerusalem temple. 
I'm not suggesting that we have them pay for our church, and they won't, don't worry. But um, just there's something to think about. God does amazing things. Ellen White says that at the end of time, if, if we are being faithful to God's call to take the three angels' message to the world with the right arm of the gospel, the health message, the wealth of the nations will flow into the ministry of the church. Something about that seems exciting to me. But there's, there's one more story that I have to take you to because Daniel was faithful and because of Daniel's faithfulness, many people were blessed. And if you go to the New Testament, all through the Gospels, all four of those books, you'll find the story of another man who was faithful in the face of a great conspiracy against his life. Jesus, he made some interesting statements like in Matthew 5:11, he said, "Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you when you are reviled." Hmm. And then he said this in Matthew 5:38, "You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. The way that Jesus suggests that we respond to an attack is with mercy and love, not, and, and faithfulness to God, not with a fight, not with a flight, but with faithfulness. Polite, kind, loving, confident, but not defensive. Jesus' attitude towards controlling governments was to be a good citizen. In, Matthew, in, in Mark chapter 12, he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. His attitude was not to be a defiant zealot, but to be a faithful follower of God. He could stand before Pilate when Pilate asked him some pretty uh, straightforward things about being a king. He, Jesus simply said, My kingdom isn't of this world. He didn't need to bow before Pilate because Jesus is the Son of God. The kingdom of Pilate was minuscule, while the kingdom of God is eternal and universal. Jesus had a stalwart, uncompromising backbone. He did not bow down in the face of, of a controlling government. Worship was only to God. Even, even when he had the opportunity to get the whole world just by worshiping Satan a little bit, Jesus said, no, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus, he's the Lord of the universe. If you want to make a list of our human rights, what rights does the creator have? And yet Jesus did not stand up for his rights. They, they took him, they, they, they imprisoned him, they took him to a trial where he was not fairly represented. False testimony was given about him, and they accepted it without, without cross-examination. He was, he was taken and beaten and whipped, blood running down his back nearly to death. And he did not fight back to defend his right of, of self-preservation, right? His right to life or whatever right you might want to put in there. He was hung on a tree. And do you remember what the Bible says that he said there? On the tree. People are, are, are killing him. They've hammered nails into his wrists. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The response that, that Jesus had 
to an attack was surrender. And because Jesus surrendered and gave his life freely and willingly, all nations of the earth are blessed. Because Jesus stood faithfully in trial, you and I can stand with God in heaven one day soon. It's true, the things are wrapping up. We are at the end of time. The fringes of eternity are right here. And things are unraveling, if you know what a fringe is like, right? Things are unraveling. I get that. And we can be afraid. It would be natural for us to be afraid as we look and we wonder and we, we ponder what might happen. But God says, don't wonder. Don't need to ponder. I got the future. I'm the one who sets up kings and takes them down. I'm the one who created the structure of history. And I'm the one who told you that we're getting near the end. The next thing to happen is your lion, your fiery God, will be coming in the clouds of glory. And between now and then, eh, no need to worry. Just be faithful to God. The disciples were in the upper room that night before the crucifixion. And they were arguing, debating, defending their perceived right to some position beside Jesus. And then they saw Jesus do something. They saw Jesus exemplify what we should do in a time of crisis. He bent down, took off his cloak, put on a towel, got some water, and he started washing their grubby feet, just like a slave would do. They were horrified to see the God of the universe, the one they knew as the Messiah, to be doing the work of a servant. And Jesus he made it really clear. He said, uh, you should do what I've done. And a little bit later, one of the apostles, Paul, said in the Philippians, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. Just put personal rights in there. <laughs> don't do anything um, from selfish ambition, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God to be something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and, found, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 